Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network channel. I'm Jana Byers, your host. Today, we're here with Dr. Joanna Jordana, a senior lecturer in human resource management at Oxford Brookes University and an honorary researcher at the Center for the Study of the Renaissance at Warwick University in Coventry to talk about her recent book, Venice's Secret Service, Organizing Intelligence in the Renaissance, out with Oxford University Press in 2019. Hello, welcome. Hi, Yana. Thank you so much for having me here. Oh, it's wonderful. How are you today? Where Where are you? Are you in London? I'm not in London. I'm uh, a little bit further north from Oxford, so about about sort of an hour by train from London. Uh, finally, first day after the lockdown, but um, pretty much locked in. <laughs> yeah, as we as we are. This is the you know this is how we talk all of our conversations now. Start with this, right? Yeah. How are you? I'm bored. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, So I'm really happy that you're taking some time to talk to me today about this book. It is fascinating. It's really enjoyable. Um, It is obviously essential reading for Venetianists, but it's pretty fun reading, and I recommend it to basically everyone. Um, So you have a very interesting CV, right? You you have another book just a couple years ago, Values and Ethics in Coaching. Yes. Yeah. And that sits in the field of education, and then Mm. you're a lecturer in human resource management. So I would love to know how all this works together. How you know, tell me. I always get asked this question because especially in, uh, in the UK academia, but I'm guessing all around the world, you're you supposed to be a specialist in one specific field, right? So how can you be a specialist in more than one? Um, so I, I did my PhD in, uh, in 16th century uh, Venetian shipbuilders and sailors, so socioeconomic history in Venice which is pretty much in concert with what I do right now. Um, and then I decided I've actually had enough of academia. It is not for me. Um, so we can sort of part our own ways. And, and, and I moved on and I started working as a, as a careers advisor, which is something I really enjoyed and I wanted to pursue further. So I did some postgraduate qualifications in coaching and mentoring. And what I found out when I was doing those is that there, at the time that there was not much research on this particular very developing uh, field uh, from an academic perspective. So I started researching it a lot more and eventually I realized "Mm, I'd love to write a book about this. And I was very lucky because I met up with uh, the publisher I wanted to publish with and they were very, very keen to work with me. So I decided to write a book on on ethics, on coaching, because it's something that there was nothing written about. And there is a very, very famous um, coaching research center all around the world, which is based in my current institution, Oxford Brookes University. And they advertised the job. And I said, you know what? I think I'd love to teach coaching. (laughs) So I applied and I got the job. And uh, what I hadn't realized is when I I entered Brookes, it's just a fantastic institution and very supportive. And um, by at the same time, I started developing my redeveloping, sort of rediscovering my interest in Venetian history, and they actually let me 
continue researching Venetian history as well as coaching. So I ended up writing books in two different fields. Um, so that is a very, very long story, sort of uh, mentioned to you in probably a couple of minutes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's wonderful. What good luck. What a great supportive administration you have. Wow. I have been and I am very, very lucky in that. Wonderful. Well, it works out for them because you're producing work all around. Exactly. <laughs> you know, and there's no reason that we have to be so specialized. In some ways, we're really um, minimizing our importance as mm. humanities scholars. Exactly. You know, our, our, the whole point is to ask what it means to be alive. And you don't need to research one day of the Civil War in order to answer that question. That is a very good point. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, this work as a Venetian, as a piece of Venetian history, mm-hmm. um, sits in the midst of a pretty ponderous historiography. Mm. Um, so I want you to tell me, like, what is it you're doing here? What is new? And what do you believe to be your contribution to the field? Yes. Okay. So, so, so what is new about the book, you mean? Yeah. What, yeah. what is that? Okay. So uh, the, the main argument that I make in the book is that... <clears throat> Contrary to other early modern European states, but also early modern Italian states, where intelligence was gathered by personal espionage networks run either by heads of states or monarchs or by their rivals, Renaissance Venice was quite emblematic in the creation of a centrally organized state intelligence organization. So they had something like an, an, an early modern CIA, really, which was run by a committee that was called the Council of Ten. And I'm pretty sure we'll discuss this later. And this, this as I call it, proto-modern organization, res- resembled a, a public sector body that operated with, with, with remarkable complexity, really, and, and served very prominent intelligence functions such as operations, such as, as analysis, cryptography, steganography, cryptanalysis, but even the development of, of lethal substances such as poison. So this is this is the main argument that basically Venice was quite different in, in the development of intelligence and espionage practices. Um, now, the, the, what is what is sort of um, different in general, what, what my contribution is to, let's say, scholarship, both to history, but also, as I will explain, to the discipline of management and organization studies. There's two contributions, really. The first one is that, um, as I claim in the book, centrally organized intelligence, so quite sophisticated centrally organized intelligence, existed long before conventional wisdom dictates, which is from the First World War. So what I claim in the book is, you know, there are several differences between then and now, and the main one, of course, is technology, right? But the notion that central political systems responsible for the surveillance of internal and external threats are characteristics of what we call the modern state, this is that this doesn't stand on, on firm ground, because as I show, you know, these systems existed already from the 16th century, so that's the first contribution. And the second is is more sort of methodological. So uh, if you notice in the book, I use a very interdisciplinary approach. that it com- I combine historical analysis with theories from sociology and management and organizational behavior. And what I try to show, to show is that the notions of organization management existed long before the 19th century, which is when scholars placed the development of these concepts. So I show that the that already from the 16th century, Venice had created this intelligence organization in two in the two senses of the word organization. Organization as an entity, but also organization as a, as a process, as a process of becoming. So this is both a method, uh, methodological, but also an ideational 
sort of novelty and, and contribution. Mm-hmm. All right. And I'm guessing that um, how you got here has a lot to do with your sources, uh, which are vast and beautiful. So tell me about tell me about your sources. Tell our listeners, where did you find them? How did you find them? What's the main body of records? Like what, yeah. what did you love? Yeah, that, that, that's my favorite topic to talk about. Um, I always, you know, usually people will ask, as you ask me, you know, what's the main argument? What's the main contribution? And, and as, as you heard me saying, oh, Venice was emblematic or Venice was unique in creating this. This is not true. And I, and, and I, I clearly state in the book that, the reason why there is what we call the Venetian exceptionalism, which we're critiquing right now as, as Venetianists, is because in Venice, all the sources around um, the, the, the Venetian Secret Service have survived. You know, whereas in in other states, maybe they haven't survived, or if they have, they still haven't been explored. Okay, um, so the main I, I use different sources. Primarily, I worked at the Venetian State Archives, but I, I also looked at uh, documents in in. What was called the the, Venetian, the the Vatican Secret Archive, which is now uh, a thing uh, they changed the name to the Vatican Apostolic um, Archives, and also the the archives of Simancas in Spain. But the main sources are in Venice, um, and they are primarily all the records, um, all the, the the registers of the Council of Ten. The Council of Ten was a, ironically a committee of seventeen men, and it was the res- the committee responsible for the security of the Venetian states, and and they were because they were let's say what I call the management committee or the spy chiefs of the Venetian intelligence organization. They had created a secret archive where they kept all the relevant information to intelligence, uh, counterintelligence, espionage, cryptology, cryptology, and so on and so forth. And all these archives have survived today. And they're called, um, they're the, so, so basically it's called the secret archive of, 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 of the Council of Ten. Um, it's very easy to access. Um, at the moment, you can access it digitally from the Venetian State Archives computers. I was lucky enough to be able to look at the, the actual um um, the actual uh, documents rather than looking at it from a computer screen. Um, but it survived and it's been looked by other scholars as well. Uh, and it's, it's not it's not a unique discovery on my part at all. It's just that is the main bulk, the, the, the main um, bulk of documents I, I use. Um, and as I said, it, it is fascinating. Now, I only looked at the secret documents, the secret registers of the, of the Council of Ten. They're also what they call the criminal registers where there, there's a lot more information about tortures of spies um, but of course even the secret registers are, that's it's such a vast archive um, that even looking at that for the time period that I'm interested in because it goes all the way up to um, the fall of the republic in the late 1700 um, so that was that was the main archive I use. Mm-hmm. Um, you know this is the thing about Venetian studies why is it why, why is it so well done and you know there are a couple good answers um funding of course but also yeah it's this beautiful archive this kilometer upon kilometer of archival material of course we study it yeah and and you know what i what i found fascinating because i absolutely loved the time I spent in Venice researching this and it was non-stop right because you do as you say it's, it's quite expensive to be there so you you work non-stop from the opening of the archive in the morning until the closing in the evening and i just couldn't get enough of it because it was so exciting but also what what is really interesting about this archive is you've got the formal registers which have been copied by scribes after the actual deliberations that were taking place in order for the council of ten to take all the decisions they had to take but also you've got the the draft documents what they call the fieldse 
uh, and just which are very badly written usually and quite difficult to it's an eyesore to actually look at read them but if you go back and forth between the two you discover some information or some notes that have stayed on the margins that are just fantastic you know and I absolutely love working I love working in the Venetian archives it was just and you know anything and that's why I, I find it very difficult to abandon the idea of, of continuing to work in or on Venice rather than on another um, state like and another Italian state. No, I, I fully agree with you. It's wonderful. Um, and when I was reading this, it made me a bit homesick uh, for the Archivio di Stato, obviously. The beautiful, the beautiful room, uh, freezing cold in the winter. Don't care. Um, but it seems like the mainstay of this material called the Frari del Home, but you worked in several collections in other places as well. How did you choose where else you wanted to go? Oh, it was um, it was quite a logical decision that the archives, the, the material I consulted in Venice led me to other places. So what I re- what I wanted to see is you've got this central intelligence service that the Venetians have created. Um, but also what I found is a lot of information of um, rivals of Venice, primarily um, the, the, the papal states of Rome, but also the Spanish Empire. So early modern Spain, their ambassadors were reporting on what the Venetians were doing because I think that there was there was some kind of envy there. You know, the Venetians are doing this right. So what I wanted to understand is, okay, the Venetians have created this, what seems to be a central intelligence organization. How do other states view this organization? So what I had was letters um, leaving Venice, going to Rome or going to Spain by the, the papal ambassador or that is the nuncio, or, or the um, Spanish ambassador. So I decided I want to see what these people are writing, but I don't know, you know, I don't know because I don't know the letters. I can't see the letters. So I went to these two, especially to Rome and to Spain, just to try to understand, to read letters from those ambassadors in Venice, just to try to understand, okay, how does the Venetian Secret Service, how is it communicated, how is it presented to the monarch in Spain or to the Pope in Rome? Um, so basically, it was the documents that led me there. Sure, but of course. So let's get into the body of the argument here. And I think the best way to get at what you cover in your first chapter and how you set this up is for you to explain to our listeners why this book is and indeed really had to be set in Venice. What is it about Venice, the political, economic, commercial, geographic landscape that makes this study possible and really necessary? Yeah. Well, I would say before we even talk about the the characteristics, political, economic, geostrategic, and so on, and so on of, of Venice, um, there's a very, very simple um, answer to the question, you know, why Venice? And, and I, I sort of alluded to it, is because there is very, very um, good and plentiful documentation in Venice, in Venice that allows for a study of this type. Okay, so from a practical perspective, because, you you know, finding spies in the early modern period is very, very difficult. Um, And it's very difficult because spies were not professionals. There's no profession of spy in the 16th, 17th century. That means that most states, what they did is they employed the most um, the, the most unexceptional men and threw them into the most exceptional circumstances. And because these were the most unexceptional men, their names were not even mentioned in documents. So it's very, very difficult to find information about espionage. Whereas in Venice, because of the creation of a central intelligence organization 
uh, and by extension, the creation of a secret archive. So the archive of what today we would call classified information. Practically, it was very. It was a lot easier to conduct a study like that in Venice and on Venice. Okay, so that that that's the main thing. And um, but there were some uh, Venetian uh, idiosyncrasies. So so I would say the 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 first one is Venice as 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 a state or as a lot of scholars call it today as an empire. So the Venetian state or the Venetian Republic did not just comprise of the city of Venice but a constellation of nearby cities in the area of the Veneto in, 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 in northern Italy, um, and, but also um, a, a lot of areas of contemporary, what, what, what now is contemporary Balkans, so um, um, Serbia and, and Croatia and Bosnia and Albania, and significant parts of Greece, uh, of contemporary Greece. So, so um, be, because of this sort of imperial makeup of Venice, there needed to be you know, there needed to be some kind of centrally organized uh, intelligence service. So, so the, 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 the geographical, uh, the geopolitical makeup of Venice is, is the first the first reason. Um, but also, so, you know, the number of colonies. Um, but also, I would say um, the, the political economies, the economy strategies of Venice is also really important. There is a great idiosyncrasy in Venice, and that is political affairs in Venice could influence um, the economy, but also any economic, especially commercial affairs, could have political implications because Venice primarily was a maritime uh, and a mercantile empire. Okay, um, so that combination as well was very, very important. And the final one that I really need to mention, which is very, very idiosyncratic when it comes to Venice, is the ruling class. Because in Venice, it's, it's, I think it's the only state in, in early Europe, modern Europe at the time, especially in early modern, no, no, actually no, it's not just in early modern Italy, but especially in early modern Europe, that the politi- that the ruling class are also merchants. So those people who take the most significant political decisions are the ones who really need to protect their economic interests. And this is why I make the claim in the book that you cannot talk about political, um, diplomatic intelligence or intelligence from a political perspective without looking at the economic factor um, either. So it's a constellation of different factors, but I would say the main one is very practical. There is extant documentation in Venice that you can use to write a book uh, of, of this type. Yeah, yeah of course. Uh, and uh, and I think um, I would also, next I want to get into the idea really of well, let's talk about your next chapter, which is called State Secrecy of Venetian mm. Virtue. Mm. Right. So can you explain why this is such an apt title? Yes, this is, I have to admit, this is my favorite chapter. I don't think it's the easiest one to read because it's got quite a lot of, the, uh, sort of sociological theory in it. But I just absolutely loved, um, I love this chapter. So what I mentioned in the chapter, and this is not just um, my own uh, my own argument. If you look at Filippo de Vivo's work, um, he's also touched upon the, the notion of, of secrecy and how sacred it was for the Venetian ruling class. Um, and by secrecy in this chapter, what I mean is official state secrecy. So secrets of the state that the, the Venetian authorities were trying to conceal. Um, and it is a Venetian virtue primarily because the Venetians created a, a plethora of rules and regulations to protect official state secrets. Um, from from being leaked to other um, uh, foreign rivals and enemies, um, and strangely enough, I'm, I'm saying this in a very simplified way. Of course, I explain in the chapter they managed to school 
the, the Venetian lower classes into also protecting Venetian state secrets as well. So they, they included them in, in this sort of protection of official state secrecy. So, so secrecy was a virtue in Venice. It wasn't a vice. It was a virtue. It, it held the whole political system together, at least seemingly. Um, but also because of secrecy, the Venetian authorities managed to offer the, the lower classes, which, as you know, the, the, the Popolani, the Venetian uh, lower classes, did not have access to political participation. They were not allowed to vote. But by giving them this role of protecting somehow state secrets, by denouncing those who were leaking them, they actually gave them the, the, the impression that they had some kind of say, some kind of power, political power or political participation. So they kept them under control. And this is why, you know, secrecy, um, on the one hand, you know, I call it a virgin, but also uh, I, I analyze it as a communicative event, not as just um, this notion of concealing information, but as the process of ongoing social interactions between individuals who, without the protection of secrecy, would not have been able to interact. So it is a virtue in that sense. You know, without secrecy, you cannot, you cannot protect and you cannot communicate a specific secret. Because you have it, you can communicate it. And this is, this is a great virtue to have as part of political statecraft. And it turns it into, it turns secrecy into kind of a, there's a market value there, right? It's, um, it, it creates things. But like, what are we talking about? Like, what are these, what material might people know that they would consider a secret? Oh, it's a combination of things. And this is, this is a great question. This is a question that people asked at the time. Because um, what happened is the Venetian authorities invited individuals, invited everyone to, um, denounce anyone who had any who would leak state secrets or who had an important secret relating to the state and unfortunately people did not understand what these secrets were of course you know there is um there are very important secrets like when the venetian authorities are planning to attack a particular enemy right this is really important you know some people would know that information and that's information should not be leaked or divulged to to any unauthorized individual but anything you know from um, something like, oh, yesterday I saw the Spanish ambassador and he was speaking to the secretary of, of um, the, the Ottoman ambassador. Um, and, you know, sort of gossip. Gossip was also part of, 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 of that secret. And trying to understand what was important information and what was just gossip was very, very difficult at the time. And, it, and, and indeed, a very um, a, a, a time-consuming process. But from a historian's perspective, Jan, especially social economic historians, what you do see in the archives is these extremely vivid descriptions. So people took it upon themselves to be sort of spies for the authorities, and they would write these really lengthy reports with this, this the, 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 the information they offer is pure gold. So I saw this individual, it's about you know one meter high so very short with a sort of reddish beard wearing a black this and you know a lot of information that for for us as historians you know today it's just pure gold oh that's wonderful god i love the archives um and then several bodies are engaged in the maintenance of the security so who who has control who has the primary control over this yes so the primary control uh, is is uh, upon the council of 10 which as i said before is a, com- a, a committee of 17 men um that is 10 ordinary members who primarily um have the most active role six ducal councillors uh, who do not have voting rights 
but are there because as, as part of the process, but also the doge, who is primarily a ceremonial figurehead. He doesn't take any decisions. Um, the decisions of the Council of Ten are taken by voting. Okay, So you need to, to vote on any there's deliberations, formal deliberations that are taking place, so that they're called deliberazioni, and um, in order for a, a decision to become law, to become regulation, um, um, they they have to vote, and there has to be a majority. Okay, so at the top of this organizational hierarchy of the Venetian Secret Service is the Council of Ten. And then they manage, if you like, um, a, a number of people. One group of people they manage who are the, the, the sort of professional um, informants are the Venetian ambassadors in, in all of, around Europe. Okay, So they operate in foreign courts and they have to sort of, um, retrieve any kind of information or intelligence they can. Whatever they cannot do themselves, they employ their own spies. So on the one hand, they manage the ambassadors. They also manage um, a, a growing bureaucracy of those secretaries who are responsible of um, copying and, and, and also archiving all these what we would call today classified documents. Okay, so this is a, a big, a, and, and all these are, are, are premised, are based in the Doge's Palace. Okay, so, as I said, some of the most impressive intelligence headquarters of the early modern world. Um, but also they have developed one of the world's earlier state-funded Department of Professional Cryptology. So they manage that particular department uh, and they oversee the education and the training of cryptographers and cryptanalysts. And ultimately, they also oversee the work of, of the plethora of um, lay spies that are working for, for the Republic. At the same time, they also authorize merchants and sailors or ship's captains especially to um, do any kind of um, work for them that is related to, to intelligence and espionage, so from um, transporting criminals on board their ships or to reporting information that they hear um, when they're um, um, sort of traversing the Mediterranean. So it is, it is a very it's complex organisation. As I said before, clearly the, 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 we don't have the technology, they didn't have the technologies we have today. But imagine trying to manage... Um, thousands of people through letters, sending a letter that will take one one uh, month to get to go to Constantinople to offer your instructions um, to the ambassador there and wait for another month for the, the, the reply to come back. It, it, it's incredible. It's absolutely incredible to imagine. And this, this spy network, right? I mean, it seems like there are dozens, hundreds of people involved at any time in the protection of these secrets. That's fair, yeah? Um, which is astounding. And then if you also consider the, you know, the Popolani, just the people around town and in the provinces who are doing the same, it's a massive organization and demonstrates a really impressive control. You know, these secretaries, we need we, more work needs to be done on them as well. Um, they, you know, because they have, they often keep their positions for life. So, they have this incredible power that we still don't, I don't think, fully understand. All right. Um, so I want to talk about the archive and the way you talk about the creation of the archive is something that I find really compelling. So in the, in the 1530s, reforming efforts led to the collection and organization of all foreign policy treatises. And you write, I'm going to quote here, um, quote, this decision, quote, enabled the reconceptualization of the archive as a civic mnemonic tool, the documentary embodiment of the Republic itself. 
So the process of archiving and preserving the state's most sensitive records not only served to the purpose of protecting and concealing the Republic's most sacred field, um, sorry, filed knowledge, but became the fulcrum of committing past and present events and actions to collective memory. Um, and I want, I want to talk about this because you, you say historians and that's, you know, you and me, but it's also not just you and me. We're talking about Andrea Mocenigo and Marin Sanudo, who are looking at these things in the early 16th century. And it continues. So I want to understand kind of what this is. What's the link between the creation of a state archive and the creation of an official state history? Mm-hmm. Okay. So something to to consider here is um, the creation of a, of a state archive. And it did, there, there is a creation of a state archive in Venice. And as part of that, there's a branch of it is the secreta. So that is the creation of the secret archive, which is where... Primarily, the Council of Ten would store all the records that we would call them classified records today. And that was part of the of the bigger sort of chancery, the bigger archive, the state archive, but it's the secret archive, archive. Now, that's not a novelty. Lots of early modern European states create secret archives at the time. And, and this, um, these, these, this archive serves three main purposes. Okay, Firstly, very obvious, the protection and preservation of, of sensitive state per- papers. They need to be stored somewhere in order to be kept secret, okay? Secondly, they're used for the instruction of the government on former deliberations um, and, and any legal precedent. So basically they're used, you know, government um, uh, governmental staff might use them just to, to see is there any legal precedent before that I can use it for new deliberations and new regulations. And thirdly, for the, the supply of information to outgoing ambassadors who would go into the archive, they would read any relevant information that will help them sort of fulfill their, res- their professional responsibilities when they would serve as an ambassador in, in any um, foreign um, court. But what happens in, if I remember correctly, 1515, so very early 16th century, there is a third, a fourth function that is added to the archive. And that is the Council of Ten decide that it is important to create some kind of historical image of the the, 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 the Venetian um, Republic. Uh, and of course, with them as, a, as, as the, the one of the main governing body, bodies. So what we need to do is allow some official historians to enter the archive, especially the secret archive, and to write the history of you know, of, of Venice, uh, especially more or less around that particular point in times of 15th, 16th century. Um, and of course, you know, they would let them go in, they would have access to all these documents, but before they publish any of these histories, these histories would be censored by um, scholars at the, the University of, of Padua. Okay, so what I claim in the book, um, it's that you have the creation, especially of the secret archive, for the very functional purposes that I've mentioned, but you, what also happens is that the, the Council of Ten take advantage of that documentation in order to present a particular historical image of Venice and, by extension, of themselves as, as, as the rulers of Venice um, that suits them. Okay, So there is some kind of propaganda there. Okay, So this is basically what I tried to show there, that, that there is a lot more to the creation of the secret archive, um, uh, a lot more than its actual function. And, and this is something about the historicization, so the, the, the development of historical image that serves the purpose that the specific governing um, ruling class at the time wanted to serve. So the creation of lore of a 
Right. And, I, and, and an image, I mean, that holds the idea that uh, the, the DHE was terrifying, that the Venice was this state among states. Um, you mentioned, you cited Venetian exceptionalism earlier, and that's maybe we're seeing kind of the creation here. <clears throat> All right. Uh, in your next chapter, which is chapter four, if you're reading along at home, uh, is Venice's Department of Cryptology, which is a really fun chapter. It's great. So tell us, what, what, what should we know about cryptology? What is it, for starters, and what does it do? Okay, cryptology is basically um, a, a particular um, uh, craft or art that existed from very very early on, uh, all across early modern Europe and beyond, of course. And it's basically the practice of of concealing a specific text text in order for for individual for specific individuals to be able to understand and no one else. But also, so that's um, cryptography, but also cryptanalysis and finding ways. Um, in the 16th century, highly um, scientific ways uh, of, of decrypting information. So it's encryption and decryption. And the, the, the interesting thing about Venice is that they create one of the earliest um, state-funded departments of professional cryptology. So not only is this department funded by the state, by the Council of Ten, they're the ones who organize it and oversee it, but the individuals that are trained um, to be official cryptologists, and these are these, these are formal secretaries. Only that they have the specific function of being um, cryptographers and cryptanalysts. Um, they they are based in the Doge's Palace. Um, their their training is overseen by the Council of Ten. Their remuneration is overseen by the Council of Ten. Their promotion is overseen by the Council of Ten. Um, and, and it starts, I mean, the information we've got, it starts in the early 16th century with uh, jo uh, Giovanni Soros, one of the, the, the most famous um, cryptographers. It's not the only one. You've got, um, there's there's evidence of, of cryptology departments in Milan, in Rome, and in other places in Italy. But again, we do have um, some information at the moment. I would say most of it, it's not accessible now. There's a lot of information in the Venetian State Archives, but it is not accessible um, to common mortals like me. Um, so I couldn't access any of that information. Uh, it's considered to be protected, uh, protected material that you cannot see. Um, but again, it is uh, it, it is called in that particular that particular point in time. It is called an art. Of course, it's not just an art. Cryptology is a science. Okay, it's based on on mathematics primarily, um, and it, it's just fascinating. And indeed, most of the material. That exists at the moment in in the Venetian State Archives. Most of the the, the correspondence that I use, not uh, not just the regulation, but correspondence between the ten and the governors or the ambassadors in different places around Europe and and um, the Levant, um, it is written in in cipher. Okay, uh, but of course it has been deciphered. So you can see the, the cipher document, and then thankfully the document in Italian. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to to read it. Much as I hear. By people who, who are very interested, we, we use you know they, they like um, cryptography as a hobby, but it's quite easy to decipher. But that's not for me to say because I've got no clue how they do it. And maybe you know now that you know this cipher, of course it's easy. Yeah. Um, you know once you once the the puzzle's been solved, it's easy to solve it. Uh, I want to just quick protected material. Why is it protected? Do you know what? I have got no idea. Uh, my understand. Well, I do have some uh, suspicion. So my understanding is, uh, a lot of this material is quite frail, um, so they 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 wouldn't want anyone to start touching it. Um, I, I was told that you could ask for special permission. One of my colleagues managed to get it. Uh, I didn't ask for it. I think 
again, it's speculation, but my colleague was Italian and, and it, sometimes it's different depending on where, where you're from. Um, my, my husband is a, a historian of the CIA um, by trade, by training, is is just is very knowledgeable about intelligence services in the twentieth and twenty first century. His his um his take on this is that there's a reason why this information is now classified is because states want to protect anything having to do with cryptology. I don't know about that. I'm not really sure whether sixteenth century cryptology would be so important to the Italian state in the twenty first century. I think the material is frail, uh, but I mean, also the, the, there's some information there that I'm sure it's frail, but some others, I, I understand why they want to protect it. Having said that, they digitize a lot of the material at the moment, so they could easily digitize it and let people see it. Mm-hmm. That's a complaint. Well, yeah, yes, I heard that. I got it. Um, and it, I think maybe, you know, if you're allowed, I'm, I'm guessing it's on, it's on, it's, you know, in the line. I, I, I wanted to see a will and it had been a sealed will. It was like someone had written the will and then sealed it so you no know, one could see it. And this was in the, you know, 1650, 1625, the will was written. And I had to, to do a special petition to get it, even though that person, their heirs and the great family was long gone. Um, but, you know, the Venice still exists. Yeah, and- it's strange. And I've heard of these stories. I find it I'm not that um I find it difficult to ask for these things I know other colleagues that are very happy to just ask for a favor I just find it really stressful so if I can do without I will do without I mean having said that I did try to access this information I was categorically told it's impossible so I just I knew that there was no point persisting all right you know maybe that'll change in the future but you never or know maybe <laughs> well, they are state secrets yes um, <laughs> And the government continues. Um, all right. So uh, your ultimate chapter, Extraordinary Measures, brings to mind all the lore about the 10, all the idea, you know, the kind of stories about Venice that have led the led the romantics to name it the Bridge of Sighs, um, uh, which is, you know, the idea that the condemned were on their way out, and but they could stare outside the bridge and get a view of their beloved Venice one more time, and they would sigh. If you, in case you're wondering how it was, you, my listeners, were under wondering how it was named that, um, and it, it feels like this might have been uh, true. So, just you tell me, was it true? Just how terrifying was the ten? There's a lot of myth and a lot of legend around the ten, and indeed. I think up until now in historiography, historiography now up until sort of the early 2000, um, but also historiography at the time in the 16th, 17th century, they have been portrayed as this um, sort of fearful committee that basically they were extremely harsh and they they committed all these gruesome crimes against their own people, but anyone else. Um, I don't think they're exactly like that. Um, of course, when it comes, the interesting thing about the, the, the Extraordinary Measures chapter, the very last chapter, talks about the gruesome interrogations and tortures um, that the Council of Ten sort of imposed on uh, enemy plotters and spies. This is not new. Any any country in the any, so excuse me, any state, any any early modern European state, dare I say, any modern state now could be employing or were employing these sort of gruesome interrogations and tortures. It was happening then and it was, it's happening now. I'm not justifying this. 
But what I'm saying is, when it comes to enemy plotters and spies, I would expect any 16th century <laughs> um, rulers and, and uh, ruling class to actually employ these measures. The interesting thing is, they were uh, they were not critiqued or criticised by anyone. They were considered to be the norm. Okay, um, but what we also have, and what I also found um, in the documents, is this very benevolent um, side of the term. That has not really been recorded in 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 books on Venice. So they were they were very anxious to protect those that were working for them, and by extension, that was those that was that were working um, for the security of the Venetian state. Um, there were several examples of trying to protect their own um, their own uh, postmen. For example, uh, to ensure that they wouldn't be attacked. Um, whenever even an individual uh, of an, an exceptional individual would be employed as a spy, um, usually they ended up dying, being decapitated, because most of them would end up in the Ottoman capital. And of course, they were, you know, they had the same fate as Ottoman spies had in Venice. Um, the ten would uh, sort of um, protect uh, their widow, their children. They would offer them a salary for life that would offer them um, a lot of support. Um, so there was not only this gruesome side that you expect um, of, you know, anyone trying to do to, um, discipline plotters and spies, um, but there's also the benevolent side that we haven't seen. Of course, they were considered to be uh, really tough, but their remit was really tough as well. They were uh, tasked with the protection of the security of not just the island of Venice, but the whole Venetian state. That is tough. So I think I'm I'm one of the uh, of the few people that defend them basically. <laughs> uh, I mean, this is a big job, but I think the other thing about the ten isn't just that they're they're gruesome methods, but they're so good at it, right? That's part of the myth. They are, but you know, if you read the letters, of course, I've read a lot. I mentioned at the very beginning of this interview about the main body of, of uh, archival um, material that I saw was that their, their deliberations. But what I didn't mention is another great uh, body of work that I, I um, consulted was their formal correspondence with their ambassadors, but also their governors all, all around Europe, uh, middle the, the, the Near East and, and Northern Africa. And if you if you read the letters. They're so incredibly polite <laughs> with everyone. And by everyone, I mean people who were their subordinates. So in the organizational hierarchy of the Secret Service, with their inferiors, they were incredibly polite. They were fierce. They would um, um, inspire discipline, but they were so polite. Um, and the interesting thing is when they were found to be wrong, they were, not, um, they were willing to um, sort of reconsider a decision um, and change it. Which again, you know, it, 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 of course, a gruesome, a gruesome um, uh, and fearsome committee. But you know, there's always this but. You know, that there was there was a great benevolence, benevolence and a great sense of justice um, in them as well. And importantly, what I need to mention here, all these gruesome punishments that they de- deliberated upon uh, and decided upon. Uh, for anyone who would cause problems, who would uh, sort of shake the security of the Venetian state, they would also have them for them as well. So if any one of the 10 did something, let's say, to compromise official state secrecy, they were even threatened with a penalty of death. So they were not immune to that. This is what I'm saying. They were they were very just, in my view. Wonderful. I, I think you've convinced me. There um, you go. It's a- <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. It sounds like you had a really good time with this book. You've worked on it for a long time. It feels dear to you, but it sounds like it was a 
kind of a, a rollick, uh, rollicking fun in the archive as well. I mean, I've written a book. I know, I know it's not all, it's not all wine and roses, but well, you, you can you can combine a little bit of wine and roses. Um, as I said, I absolutely loved it, and I think it's um, compared to my other big project before that book was, of course, my PhD thesis, and then it was a lot more difficult to find material. Whereas with this, one document, one box led to the other. And eventually you would piece information together, which was complex, but it was so exhilarating. Um, but also had the opportunity, and I had a lot of financial support from my university as well, so that's, that's really important. I had the opportunity to stay in Venice for some quite sustained periods of time. And all day I would spend on that. And, of course, you know, you've got wonderful colleagues that you can discuss your work with. And, you know, it's quite a collaborative environment. At least for me, it's always been in the state archives. Um, so I just absolutely loved it. Yeah. So uh, you're going back, I assume. What are you going to work on? What's next? So what are you working on now, I guess? So at the moment, um, I, I do again have another grant to go back. And, and unfortunately, it's very difficult with COVID. Everything is stopped, right? Um, so what my, my plan now, Jana, is to go back to my uh, PhD thesis, which I've never published uh, but look at it from a, a, a different perspective. So my, my PhD thesis was on the Venetian arsenale, so the Venetian shipbuilding industry. Um, that was a socioeconomic study of the shipbuilders and sailors, um, how they were outside of the arsenal, so whom they got married to, what did they have in their houses, and what religion did they practice, and so on and so forth. But now what, what I'm working on is going back inside the arsenale try to see how it operated as another type of early modern organization, primarily, however, around the notion of organizational secrecy. Um, so try to see, you know, what kind of um, or what kind of, of, of secrets um, uh, they protected. If, if, and again, I don't know if, if any information is there, right? Um, so secrets of, of production, um, corporate secrets, basically, and try to see whether there was any instance of organizational secrecy um, and if there was, um, whether it was effective and whether it somehow protected um, the Venetian um, naval industry. Um, so this is this is the, 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 the project I'm, I'm working on right now. And the, 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 the following one after that, for me, the dream is to do exactly the same study that I did on Venice, but on Florence. I have a suspicion that there is a very similar intelligence mechanism in Renaissance Florence um, that still needs to be um, sort of researched. And this is something I would like to do in the future. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, and that would be in a really important work for understanding mm. for under Venice as well. Yeah. yeah. And comparing and contrasting yeah. as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. But you'd have to work in Florence. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that, that is also, uh, um, you know, quite appealing. Yeah, sure. All right. Thanks so much for your time. I think I have, uh, if we talked for quite long enough and I'll let you go, but I'll be, uh, we'll be in touch about talking, you know, for recording the podcast on your next work. Fantastic. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about the book. And thank you for having read, read it uh, with, with such great interest. I'm really grateful. Oh, wonderful. Thanks very much. We'll talk soon. All right. Take care. Thank you.